0: Uh, Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Cato Institute, uh, both to those of you who are physically present with us and those who are virtually in attendance at www.cato.org. My name is Neil McCluskey, and I am the Associate Director of Cato's Center for Educational Freedom. Uh, Today we will be discussing what I think is a critically important topic, uh, a potentially really huge very important reality that has been missed, I think, largely in Washington's recent, very heated obsession with openly for-profit colleges and universities. And that is, it appears, that all sectors of higher education are making very substantial profits off of undergraduate students, and doing so in large part thanks to money that is derived from taxpayers. Now, is this a controversial thing to say? Absolutely, and I think we'll see that in our debate today. Uh, but as research by Professor Vance Freed, uh, published in Cato's latest higher education policy analysis, which you could get outside and see here, um, in which uh, in this analysis, Professor Freed strongly argues that colleges across the board, so in all sectors are almost certainly bringing more money in through undergraduates uh, than they're spending on the education of those undergraduates. And where does this additional money go? Well, things seemingly valuable, like research, uh, but also to things that are seemingly extraneous, like the uh, biggest climbing wall uh, potentially in the world, uh, giant jacuzzis, and things like that. but the operative word that I just used is seemingly. What's one school's necessity might be another school's bridge to nowhere. And this is going to be all part of the discussion today. Here, though, is one thing that I think is very real. The total inflation-adjusted amount of money going to colleges that came through taxpayers, so this is direct subsidies but also student loans, it has risen from roughly $106 billion adjusted for inflation in 1985 to over $260 billion in 2010. So in light of the nation's huge fiscal troubles and the national debt that's being discussed just a few blocks from here, uh, it is clear that large piles of money like this have to be examined. We have to decide whether or not this is something we can want to continue to spend Then you throw in the fact that college sticker prices have grown at rates far uh, exceeding family incomes for many, many years, and it is clear that this is an issue that must be addressed, that we can no longer turn a blind eye toward it. Here to delve into the problems and the questions that they raise is a very distinguished panel, and I thank all of them uh, for joining us here today. Uh, We'll start by hearing from Professor Freed, who I just mentioned, then get thoughts from President McPherson, and finally from Dr. Whitehurst. Uh, But first, I'll give you some biographical information for all of them, and I apologize to everybody right off the bat uh, for any glaring omissions from your bio, but the fact of the matter is, it's an extremely impressive list for everyone, and I just don't have the time to go into all of it. So first, Vance Freed. Vance H. Freed is the Riata Professor of Entrepreneurship at Oklahoma State University and author of Better Cheaper College, an Entrepreneur's Guide to Rescuing Undergraduate Education, which I should mention is available outside the auditorium. He is also, of course, the author of our new policy analysis. His research focuses on higher education, entrepreneurship and public policy, the venture capital industry, and management of rapid growth firms. Freed previously was a private practice attorney, an oil company executive, and an investment banker. In other words, he has been in both the ivory tower and the real world. Next, M. Peter McPherson. He has a very long list of accomplishments, so I'll just give you the excerpts. Uh, We only have really an hour and a half for the whole forum, and it could take that long to get through all his accomplishments, so I'm just going to give you the highlights. Uh, Peter McPherson is the president of the Association of Public and Land-Grant Universities, APLU the nation's oldest higher education association, comprised of public research universities, land grant institutions, and state university systems. Some of you might know it by its old acronym, uh, NASLJUK, I can't even pronounce it, I I can't remember the letters either. And if there's one great accomplishment from President McPherson, if he is responsible for changing the acronym, he deserves every accolade he can get. Uh, He is the former chair of the board of directors of Dow Jones and Company, and has chaired the boards of several organizations focusing on nutrition, fighting hunger. McPherson also recently completed the chairmanship of a commission created by Congress to consider ways to greatly increase the number of students who study abroad. Prior to joining APLU, McPherson was president of Michigan State University for more than 11 years. Are there any Spartans here, by any chance? Sorry. Before uh, going to Michigan State, McPherson held senior executive positions with Bank of America, served as Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Treasury, Administrator of the U.S. Agency for International Development, and was a partner and head of the Washington offices of the law firm Voris & Sater. Prior to that, he was a special assistant to President Gerald Ford in the White House. He received a B.A. from Michigan State, an M.B.A. from Western Michigan University, and a J.D. from American University. Finally, we have Grover Russ Whitehurst. Uh, If you've been in education in Wonk for very long, uh, Wonk in D.C. for very long, you know Russ Whitehurst. For many years, you saw and heard him at the annual National Center for Educational Statistics Condition of Education Briefings. That's how I first encountered him. Well, why is that? Well, currently, uh, Dr. Whitehurst is the Herman and George R. Brown Chair and Director of the Brown Center on Education Policy at the Brookings Institution. However, previously, he was the director of the Institute of Education Sciences at the U.S. Department of Education, as well as U.S. Assistant Secretary for Educational Research and Improvement. He was also the chair of the Department of Psychology at the State University of New York at Stony Brook and academic vice president of the Merrill Palmer Institute. He received his PhD in experimental child psychology from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign in 1970. And with that, I will turn the podium over to Vance, then Peter, then Russ. After that, I'll offer an opportunity for quick responses from the panelists to what previous panelists said, uh, and then ask one question of my own, and then send it out to you, the audience, for Q&A.
1: Thank you, Neil. Um, and what I'm going to do to start is just give you a quick overview of the paper. Okay. I'm going to give you a quick overview of what's in the paper. The paper is available outside, uh, but just let me run through it for you Federal Higher Education Policy and the Profitable Nonprofit. And I start off with the assumption that from a policy standpoint, the goal should be to ensure that all deserving students have access to higher education. Uh, before I hit this next slide, I want to point out uh, I'm a faculty member at Oklahoma State University. The opinions I express are my own, do not represent those of necessarily those of Oklahoma State University. I'm not an administrator there. Okay. Policy goal, ensure all deserving students have access to higher education, not maximize industry profits, which is what has been happening over the last 20 to 30 years. Now, when you first think of the term profits in higher education, you think of profitability of places like University of Phoenix, places that are organized as (coughs) legal Legally organized as for profits, they have shareholders, they pay dividends, you buy stock, that sort of thing. But I'm also talking about the more traditional colleges, which are nonprofit. And when I say profits, how I'm defining profits from the standpoint of a nonprofit organization is its revenues earned from providing a particular service in excess of the cost of providing that service. Now, you won't see these items as you look at an income statement of a nonprofit organization. The reason is they take the profits or this revenue excess and they spend it on things that are not a cost of providing the service that provided the revenue. Colleges make a lot of money off undergraduate education. They charge more than it actually costs to provide. And then they have excess spending primarily on sometimes some excess compensation feather bedding, graduate education, research, low-enrollment majors. Now, the first couple items are just classic economic rents. Here you're paying extra money, and there is no output. It's just insiders getting to claim money coming through. And I think we'd all agree those are bad. Uh, These other items are other mission subsidies. they aren't necessarily bad, per se. There's nothing necessarily bad about doing research. I've done that most of my uh, adult life. It's just that this is spending that is not necessary for undergraduate education. So it's not that these other mission subsidies are necessarily bad things, but they are profits from the standpoint of the provision of undergraduate services. To c- get at what the profitability is, it's hard because you don't really have good accounting systems to do that. Uh, I took a couple of ways of doing this. One is the, what's called the SHEO report, and this looks at current actual spending allocated among various missions. <coughs> So you have three traditional missions of a college would be uh, instruction, research, and public service or outreach. And what the SHEO reports do is it, they look at schools and they break down between those missions, and they break between costs down between undergraduate and graduate education. So I looked at the numbers you got from those studies. And then the CLS study is something that I did, where I created a hypothetical college using my view of, you know, best practices, how my perfect college would work, and then I built up total cost by going through, you know, like a very detailed uh, build-up of all the cost into total cost, depending on the assumptions you make. With both of these studies, you come out with one year costs somewhere between eight and nine thousand dollars. And in the paper, I decided to use eight. So, what does the average uh, college make? Well, this is for uh, private bachelor's colleges, generally, you call them liberal arts colleges. The national average net tuition was $13,515. Net tuition is the sticker price, the tuition that they quote, less the sales discounts, which are referred to as institutional scholarships. Uh, So net tuition is what the average, they're getting paid by each student per year. So we have 13,000 of revenues, and $8,000 of costs that's profit of $5,500. For those of you uh, that did any sort of financial management, that's a uh, 40% profit margin, which is a monster operating profit margin. Then if you want to include and say, well, we also want to include donations and endowment income, That adds another $7,000 to revenues, so profits really jump to that. Really big number. Uh, Taking a look at public research universities, uh, $10,000 is a pretty representative net tuition in-state for in-state students. Uh, And then they get a state subsidy say, $9,000 per student. So we've got 10000 just of revenues, cost of 8000 That's $2,000 per student profit just off what students are paying for in-state tuition. Uh, if you come in and you p- toss in the state subsidy, you're talking $11,000 per student profit. Now, talking about public schools, they have traditionally been their state-funded, and states have increased support for higher education basically to keep up with more students, the fact that enrollments have grown, and inflation. In other words, that's saying that over time, inflation-adjusted per capita student is relatively constant. Last couple of years, you've seen a downturn. Historically, we've had those in the past, and they've been restored when economies improve. Uh, So over the long term, it's been steady on a per capita basis. And the federal government was really minimally involved from a funding standpoint until the late 70s, and we've had a huge increase in the last 10 years you had about 10 billion in 2001 from a federal standpoint to, as I'll show you, 65 billion today. What's been the result of all this extra money going into the system, the federal money going into the system? Okay, here you have several state universities, major state research universities, This is in-state tuition in 2010. Uh, several of these have jumped tuition by 5 to 10% for next year, and I didn't show that, okay? This column here is 1980 tuition, but restated into current dollars, so it's inflation-adjusted. So Penn State... And 80 cost $4,000, now it costs $17,000. And you'll just see this uh, across the board. You know, pick a public school and you'll see this. OK, the result that we've had, you know, I'd say, uh, of all this money going in, college is less affordable now for everybody. Uh, I don't think that you can bl- lay total blame for that on federal education policy, but I do think you, you know you can, uh, should lay some of the blame on it. Uh, we know college is less affordable, government spending is much higher, and higher education is much more profitable than it was uh, 20 to 30 years ago. So you could think of it as sort of a summary uh, students lose, taxpayers lose, colleges win. Okay, here are some ideas for some specific federal policy changes. Uh, one, just simply don't discriminate against discriminate against the for profits. If for if it's bad behavior for a for profit to do it, and they need to be regulated in some manner. Uh, Nonprofits should have to go under the same rules and not get a free pass as they do now. Uh, okay, lower barriers to entry. Uh, federal government has a fairly significant role in how the college accreditation process works, and the current accreditation process is designed in a manner that it's very difficult for qualified new entrants to quickly enter a market. So policy should work on making it easier for a good school to enter uh, the market uh, so to increase competition. Don't take the college side on pricing. The way that uh, the financial aid system is designed is uh, really largely set by the Department of Education, and it really gives a lot of advantages uh, to the colleges in bargaining over price. And this is a particular issue uh, to private colleges that really tuition or give sales discounts a lot. They get to look at your financial information when they're, talking to you about what the price is going to be. Uh, So that shouldn't be happening. And then a big issue, uh, dramatically decreased federal funding. Current federal funding, there's about $2 billion. This is all annual in direct payments to schools. Student loans, the cost estimated at $12 billion and this is uh, running off uh, CBO numbers. They basically <laughs> estimate that for every dollar of loan made, there's going to be a 12% uh, cost to the taxpayer. So $100 billion of loans made is $12 billion. Pell Grants, $33 billion. Tax credits and deduction, $18 billion. So just quickly, what I think ought to be done, eliminate direct payments. Earmarks may be disappearing, but there's still some direct payments. Those need to be eliminated. Really need to reform student lending, lower limits on total debt. Uh, From a taxpayer standpoint, this helps because it reduces bad loans. It also helps students, and it protects naive students against some of these huge debts that they're racking up that are non-dischargeable in bankruptcy, unlike a regular debt. Uh, Other thing on student uh, lending, uh, simply raise interest rates. Uh, According to the CBO, a 2% higher rate would make the program break even, would save taxpayers $12 billion a year, and wouldn't have any really major impact on borrower behavior, the extra 2% interest rate. Uh, redesign downsized Pell's. Uh, I don't think many students need Pell in order to access a good college education, so it really needs to be targeted to the truly needy who would benefit from higher education. Uh, I'd eliminate all tax credits, deductions credits. If low-income students they're getting pills don't need a federal subsidy. Middle-class students certainly don't. Uh, back to the policy goal, ensure all deserving students have access to higher education. It can be done, and actually the federal deficit reduced by $50 to $60 billion a year. So there's my half trillion in the deficit reduction debate. Thank you.
2: Well, good to be here. Good to talk to all of you. I've got some serious reservations about the presentation just given, and I've got uh, some supporting comments as to where we might go from here. First of all, I think describing these as profits is unfortunate terminology because what this money is being spent for goes to things like research Uh, in the case of land grants and others, outreach and engagement. it, It goes for a range of things which society is asking for and legislators and others demand. Now there's a debate about what this net figure is from undergraduates. Uh, but it looked to me like when you showed the figure, Doctor, uh, you you included state appropriations as part of the revenue. And I know you. I can tell you from testifying before the state legislator f- for my appropriation for 11 years at Michigan State, that they don't think that undergraduate education is the only thing Michigan State's supposed to do. So I think to start with, it's very unfortunate to say that the profits, I don't like the word to begin with in this context, but are include revenues from state appropriations. I also think that you need to work hard at considering what are the costs of undergraduate education. Now as I understand it from a conversation previous just before the session here today, the figures that Dr. Fried uses uh, don't assume virtually no uh, expenditures uh, for undergraduate education that are faculty costs for research. In other words, that Dr. Freed teaches undergraduates, uh, and and he, I, I don't know that you do, but a professor teaches undergraduates, and you do some, uh, should any part of the research work that you do be considered a cost for undergraduate education? I submit that at least some of that cost should be. Uh, in fact, would you want to go to a university where none of the faculty did any research, uh, did, had any extra intellectual engagement, and their job was simply to teach students? I think that would be a sterile environment that frankly is, is not the environment I would bet most of you went to as undergraduates. But in short, I am very uncomfortable about this whole profit idea. Uh, I just think of the work that Oklahoma State, Michigan State, the schools around this country do in research, not all of us great stuff, much of it is very important for society. I think of the graduate education. I think of the Ph.D.s. I think of all that work and the contribution that that makes. All of it not perfect, but does. But we would would we want a society that didn't have that work? I think of the the uh, agriculture and other outreach that places like Michigan State do, which would be under the doctor's model counted as profit. Uh, I remember the time Michigan, you can see the mitten has a, is up on the thumb of Michigan. Uh, we have a major bean industry. And one spring, the rains washed out all the just planted bean crop. Michigan State Agricultural College was able to tell those bean producers, a couple hundred million dollar a year industry, within two days that they could plant those beans again and still harvest them in a timely fashion. I don't think that's profit. In short, I've got some major problems with the characterization uh, of this as profit, and I think that the calculation of the cost of undergraduate education is frankly incomplete. Now, The discussion. There's so much here. There's this. It's a good thing we got some time for Q and A here. But it's worth lots of different. There's there's several different topics here. Uh, The paper says that uh, that and the presentation just said that we should not have subsidies, uh, but we should not have excessive debt for undergraduate students. Well. I, I know that the presentation just said you need to give money to needy students, and I know you can have a reasonable debate as to whether or not the changes made since 19, 2008 that augment the eligibility pool, but I submit that a very substantial amount of the Pell money, which would be a subsidy, uh, it goes to needy students, and that's very important. It's a public good to have those students get an education they get better jobs, they, they, they pay taxes, and they contribute to the overall society. I'm, the idea, the voucher, the Pell and student loans are essentially voucher programs where the students can go where they wish to go, uh, which I think is a good market force concept to begin with, and, and I think it's critical for our society's future that needy students get that, get those resources. Speaking of unemployment, there's a figure in this paper which I, I, I almost thought, and not being flipped, was almost a typo because it said that there was unemployment for undergraduate degree holders of 35%. Underemployment. 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 Okay, well that's a very hard d- definition to, to nail down. Uh, it was interesting that in the, in the uh, latest figures on unemployment of uh, during this last recession, four-year degree holders had a 4.5% under, under unemployment. Two-year degree holders had about a 7.5%. It was high school degree holders and, and less that had this huge unemployment. Uh, I submit, whether you call it underemployment or unemployment, that figure is is really a problem. Now, uh, having said these these various things, and I look forward to the discussion, let me get into uh, the value of an exercise like this. I believe that higher education as most other sectors in this society, all other sectors, need to move toward good cost accounting. We need to know what not only undergraduate education costs, but what various degrees costs. Uh, we need to know what PhDs for various types of PhDs cost, and there's almost no information, no data on that. In short, in order to both contain costs and drive quality, you need to know those costs, you need to know, you need to measure outcomes, and you need to work those things together in such a way that that you can continue to improve. We as higher education, we in the higher education community, frankly, don't have very good cost accounting systems. Well, why don't we? Well, there's many cross-subsidies within universities. the engineering degree costs a lot more to, to provide than does the English degree. There are some very specialized and low enrollment agreement uh, programs. I think of the speech therapy program at Michigan State that's quite costly uh, compared to, let's say, again, a, a social science degree. Now, it, it seems to me that uh, it's helpful to know They ought to be able to be defended, uh, but I I believe that, and I think by defended and explained, that would be helpful. So I think this exercise of trying to drive costs and drive quality is a worthwhile exercise. But I submit, and perhaps uh, Dr. Freed would agree with me, that nobody is really quite sure what these figures are, Uh, and certainly averages aren't. Uh, So I am happy to be here today. I don't like the characterization. I think it's unfortunate. I think there's many questions that are raised by, by what's presented. And I look forward to your questions and comments.
3: I'd like to bump the discussion up just a notch um, and talk about uh, how we're performing in higher education in this country relative to uh, the other countries in the world uh, with whom we uh, we compete. And uh, the story there, I think, is, is a troubling one. Uh, we used to lead the world in uh, college attainment rates, and we're now down somewhere in the middle. There are countries like uh, Poland that managed to uh, Get many more of their of their young adults through college to a degree than than we do. Um, the apex of our higher education system is uh, you know the the envy of the world: uh, Harvard, Princeton, Michigan. But most of our students are not educated at apex or elite institutions. They're educated somewhere else. Uh, they have trouble completing. They end up with a lot of debt. And the promise that is laid out for them as they uh, read annually that students who go to college earn a million dollars more over their lifetime than students uh, who do not is uh, is substantially uh, misleading. At the same time, education education outcomes, education attainment are vital to the nation's interest. We can't mess around here. We have to do a better job. Uh, Your uh, life earnings and prospects are contingent on the quality of the education you get and the aggregate of each of our educations, a very strong predictor of how we will do as a nation. So not only are we a provider of mediocre outcomes, but we do it at the highest cost in the world. And I think this supports Professor Freed's analysis. So if you look at the analysis of the OECD, that's the organization in Paris that's kind of the, uh, the think tank for, uh, uh, for the developed world's governments, you'll find that uh, the US uh, invest, um, the average figure for uh, uh, an undergraduate student is $20,000 per year. Uh, the OECD average is $8,000 a year. In other words, it's possible everywhere else in the world to provide a good education for a public investment total investment of $8,000 a year here it takes $20,000 a year to do that so it does suggest if there aren't profits somewhere in there there are incredible uh, inefficiencies and those inefficiencies result in uh, the attainment of a college education seeming to be increasingly out of reach for more and more families as the cost uh, the, the the price that college's charge go up faster than the inflation rate year after year after year. So you only have to sit down for a little while at a social gathering with parents of kids who are coming to the age at which they'll be applying for college to know that this will be a hot topic of education. How are you going to pay for it? What's the best college to go to? What's it worth? Is there a bubble here? What should we be doing? So I'm not offended by uh, having an analysis of the cost of higher education characterized in terms of profits. Uh, It doesn't, of course, mean the same thing for a nonprofit institution as it does for a for-profit institution. But we very much need to have a common uh, uh, playing field for understanding what the public and private investment is in uh, in a post-secondary degree. So what I would like to see in the context of the ongoing debate in Washington about for-profits is I would like to see the yield of every type of higher education uh, institution put on the same scale with respect to the cost, both private private and public, of uh, attaining a degree. We don't know what that is uh, in this country for uh, non-profits, and we certainly don't know it for, for profits. And by that, I'm simply referring to the fact that the dropout rate, the non-attainment rate, is so high that the actual cost per student who attains a degree is going to be some multiple of what the, what the annual tuition cost is. And even more important, I'd like to see what the public and private costs are uh, per student for obtaining regular employment. So how much do we have to invest? for a person to complete a degree and then get a job. To the extent that there's any unemployment rate at all among college graduates, it ri- It increases the cost of, uh, of, of the process which has as one of its outcomes uh, uh, employment. So what to do about this? I mean, I liked uh, many aspects of uh, Professor Fried's uh, Analysis. I was particularly taken with the imbalance that occurs when, uh, when the college with whom I'm negotiating in terms of the tuition I'm going to pay for my child's attendance knows that I'm not in a good negotiating position because my income uh, is, is relatively high. I would not like them to know that, and having some balance in the negotiation, I think, is 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 a good idea. Uh, I don't agree with the, with the policy recommendations with regard to uh, uh, eliminating. Uh, student aid. I think that there is a lot of research that indicates that uh, how aid is directed has important effects on whether students uh, attend college and and complete college. But I do think that we need substantial changes in the system. So I have a few uh, policy recommendations. One has to do with something I've talked about on several and written about on other occasions, and that is we do not know, as uh, investors in college, public investors, or as families or students attending college, what the likely private return is for the pursuit of a particular degree in a particular program at a particular university. What is the chance, if I enroll in this program, that people like me finish? What is the chance for people like me who finish that we will be employed? And what is the likely income that will be generated from that pattern of employment. It turns out that uh, we're largely ignorant of these things. I had a a community college president in my office a few months ago. We were talking about this general, general issue, and he said, you know, at my institution, if a student enrolls in one of the health sciences programs, practical nursing, their chance of completion is 60%. But if they enroll in an IT field, the chance of completion is six percent, and I said, "Do the do the prospective students know this?" Well, of course, of course they don't. I've done an analysis of uh, community colleges that prepare uh, uh, students for nursing careers, and you can find institutions uh, funded by the same state within driving distance of each other who on the one hand will complete 80% of their students, on the other hand, 60% of their students. On the one hand, the students will be earning five years after, $60,000 a year. On the other hand, $40,000 a year. That information available to the public would create a market mechanism that relates the price paid to the product received that I think would deal with lots of issues in the market now. We have to ask, why is it that universities raise every cent they can and spend every penny? of it. Why is it that prices continue to go up? And I think there's a lack of, uh, of, of marketplace restraints on those expenditures. Empowering consumers with information on the connection between the price they're paying and the outcomes that they're likely to get, I think would generate uh, changes in uh, changes in higher education. I think uh, we ought to require uh, parents and prospective students to sign a document attesting to the fact that they've been, uh, been made aware of this information before they pay their tuition check. Just as you would have to sign a document indicating that you understand the the loan terms for the used car you're going to buy before the loan can be be made. So let's empower the market and people in the marketplace with better information. Uh, Let's make need-based student aid contingent not just on being poor, but also in engaging in the behaviors that lead to degree completion and employment. There's very good research, Uh, uh, I'll point to a a nice uh, analysis of the Promise Scholarship Program in West Virginia, in which need-based aid after enrollment was made contingent on a student uh, obtaining uh, 30 credits over the course of the year and maintaining a C average. That change had dramatic effects on completion rates. Students in fact were more likely to enroll in class and keep their GPA up in order to hold on to their student aid. So as the federal government continues to support uh, poor students and poor families in college uh, enrollment and attainment, I think it would be important to shift at least some of that aid uh, to be based uh, contingent on student behavior. And then finally, I think we need to have colleges and universities have some skin in the game in terms of the consequences that flow to students for completion, failure to complete employment, or failure to obtain employment want to take a portion of the federal aid stream, have that flow or be connected to institutions, and have institutions participate in the consequences of the repayment rate on those loans. And so if a lot of your students are defaulting on, on your loans, the pot of money that you have to dole out the students that's federally based diminishes, and you eventually uh, suffer substantially as an institution. I think we need to have university administrators thinking about what the consequences are for them of the decisions they make with regard to tuition, cross subsidies, uh, the way they run their institutions. We don't have that now. I think it's possible to create it, and I think the federal government has a role in doing so. Thank you. Well thank, uh, thank you
0: all for your, your comments. And Now as promised what I'd like to do is just give all of you an opportunity to, to give a few more thoughts on what's been said um, and I'll start with Vance since he kicked it all off um, and if you all have something to say we'll just go right back in order. Um, if nobody does then we can go right to the questions so Vance do you have anything you want to say? And all your microphones I think are on.
1: Okay. Uh- <clears throat> First thing, the underemployment number, not my number. I thought it was a typo when I first read it. I think it's uh, it's a Department of Labor stat. And underemployment is defined in that case as people with college degrees who have jobs that do not require a college degree. And it is, what well, I think, 35%, which I was really shocked to the, how high that was. A uh, couple of other comments uh, as far as do you need to research to be a good undergraduate teacher? I've never seen any evidence of that. I've seen people who are really weak researchers that are great teachers and great researchers that are lousy teachers. And there's nothing where you can really find any correlation. You can make that argument more as you move to the graduate level, but I don't think you can at undergraduate. Uh, You can keep current in your field by reading the research. You don't actually have to do the research. Uh, Other than that, uh, on Russ's comments... I really agree with you know the mediocre outcomes on high cost, and we do have a lot of problems with overselling education, and I think the institutions have been very guilty of doing that in a lot of cases. Um, I really like the ideas of good behavior, uh, in particular, i give you an example. Pell Grants, one, you can get a Pell Grant, the max Pell Grants, $5,500 for nine years as an undergraduate. Okay? There's no got-to-be-done-in-four-years got cap on it. And they don't have to do checkups on progress till two years out. So it's not like the system where you come in and you have to show your report card uh, before you get more money in the future. So I think that that's a definite uh, area. I think uh, skin in the game would be a good idea. As far as student loans, I really don't think adding 2% to the interest rate is going to have any impact on whether somebody goes to college or not, or whether or not they're going to pay the student loan off. I think having access to student loans is important from that standpoint, but not a 2% rate jump. And that's what the CBO is saying. And then my final comment, and this is more of a question for you, okay, so when you go to the legislature and they know that they're not, that some of this is to fund research, okay, and I work at a school similar to the one you were president of, and so, yeah, we definitely were hired to do other things uh, besides undergraduate education. Do they know the extent of the subsidy for research and graduate education. And my guess is they don't have a clue how much we actually spend. So that's it. It's
2: a
0: natural segue
2: to Okay uh, a whole set of comments. Now I'll try to be brief. It is true that public universities uh, and universities generally uh, have had trouble allocating the expenses. It'll be an expensive process to do that, but I think helpful. Does the Michigan State Legislature, State of Michigan Legislature, understand the work that Michigan State does? I mean, they were willing to put an extra $100 million for the nuclear physics facility uh, that we had as we bid for uh, Department of Energy, a huge project. I, I think they understand there's big Big dollars involved uh, uh, for the whole economy of Mid Michigan, the state of Michigan. I would say a, a, a couple. Well, one other point is that geez, the twenty thousand dollar a figure per student assumes all the rest of the costs. I think of and I, I mean, probably a bunch of uh, private universities in there. Oh, sure. If you if if I said to uh, the the universities. That in my association, which are all the big public universities, uh, it's going to c- it cost you twenty thousand for every undergraduate student, or every student. They would say, "Geez, where'd you get these figures?" So the OECD, OECD. <laughs> yeah, well, I, yeah, they, they, yeah, right. I know the OECD well over there in Paris, and they just this is This is a rounding error somehow, but, but let me let me get into the need for some serious reform. The Department of Education determines in, institutional eligibility for, uh, for Pell and for student loans. In other words, uh, the thousands of schools in this country where a Pell or student loan student can go and use that money, their voucher money, uh, in order to be such an institution, you need to be found eligible by the Department of Education. It's a very troubled process. Not because they're they're bad people at the Department of Education, but because the law allows default rates uh, that are extraordinary. Uh, Just to give you a sense of it, uh, you take the first three years after a student is out of school, those three years, the cohorts of those students, uh, the default rates uh, can, without affecting eligibility can be 25%, 25%, and one year, 40%. And as you get into this, it doesn't even count, a bunch of the, the defaulters in effect get deferrals, so it doesn't even count all those students that default. It's a, Department of Education people, I've talked to them at length about this, the people doing that, they think this, is, and there's only been a couple schools in the last year that were out of the thousands that were default, that were declared ineligible. This needs to be reformed, and uh, I, I'm a Republican. I was Reagan's legal counsel. I was in the administration for eight years, worked for President Ford, uh, but this, this, the way this is, the student loan eligibility system is set up is a, is a mini-SNL waiting to happen. Uh, we've got to do something about it. And I believe that uh, there's some serious reforms that can be done here. I believe there's a bunch of other changes that would be helpful. Satisfactory academic progress should be tightened up. Those of you who are connoisseurs to all this knows what that means, know what that means. I think APLU thinks that the number of semesters you can get Pell ought to be cut back. There's a bunch of serious reforms that in this environment, tight budgets, I hope we'll get to. Uh, I want to have good cost accounting. I want to have measurable outcomes and those, drive those things together. I think these things can be done and we need to uh, uh, we can be a better country if we do so.
3: I would add, I mean I agree that those things need to be done. I'm not particularly optimistic that uh, the federal government which has messed it up pretty badly so far is in the best position to uh, best position to fix it. So I think we ought to look wherever we can for market mechanisms that will push towards the needed reforms rather than legislative and regulatory mechanisms. Uh, that will not always be possible, but I think it, uh, th- there are circumstances where it would be possible. So the notion I presented of skin in the game provides a consequence for institutions that generate a large number of, uh, of loan defaults. Uh, they have no real consequence now because of the, the lax uh, r- r- regulations. We could tighten up regulations, but that will probably do damage—unintentional damage, uh, unintentional damage where, where we don't want it to happen. And so, I, again, I, I think there's a, a you know a, a conceptual exercise here of thinking about first what is politically possible, and second, how can it be done in ways that. Uh, require less federal intervention, but maintain a, a healthy and vibrant uh, post-secondary uh, sector. All right. Well, uh, now I promised that I would ask a question, but why don't I defer
0: my brutal cross-examination I had planned for everybody and see if there are questions out there now, and if there are none, I'll try and get your, jog your memory. I'll just say uh, we'll call on you in one second, but the ground rules, of course, are wait for the microphone. Please say who you are and, if so, what, you know, or if you represent an organization, what organization you're with. And ask a question, don't give a speech, and unfortunately, the microphone needs to go all the way back there.
4: Well, uh, my question concerns metrics, and can we ever come up with metrics that are designed in Washington that work? Uh, And just an example of a problem, my name is Arnold Kling, Um, example of a problem is you have school X has a much lower default rate than school Y, but school X selects students from the top of their high school class and school Y takes the most at risk kids. And it could be that relative to the students they pick, school Y is actually better. And can you really ever solve that these metrics problems?
2: There's no question that the schools with very high default rates have student bodies uh, which which are very different than the, the low default rate schools. And I think that there has to be some consciousness of that. As you apply these uh, these eligibility criteria, my only my judgment, though, is that we've gone overboard uh, in in allowing uh, very high default rates as they're defined. The discussion about the the defaults have spiked, uh, and I and I just think that we that we're going to get into a situation. I mentioned an SNL kind of thing where, we, where uh, the defaults are so high and the, the students can't get rid of them through bankruptcy either, um, which is a, a real burden. Uh, we should expect higher performance from these schools where there are for-profits. Many will say this is just a big for pro- for-profit issue and their default rates are very high on average, remarkably higher uh, than, than non-profits. But some of the nonprofits have very high defaults. Rate. This should not be a philosophical thing. This should be, but the current process needs to be tightened up and I think can address uh, your concerns and still achieve a, a, uh, a sustainable situation.
3: I think we can do this. Uh, it, it, there are various ways to do it. We we do it in, in healthcare. We, we have ways of rating hospitals and surgeons that are risk adjusted, take into account the uh, the fact that some surgeons deal with uh, people who are likely to die and others uh, others do not. So there there are ways to do it. I I do think the thing we know we can do now. It's just a matter of government will, is linking employment outcome data with. Uh, colleges and and majors, all of that information uh, sits in uh, the Social Security Administration, uh, the Labor Department, <laughs> the IRS, uh, putting it together in a way that would uh, not divulge any information about an individual, but would emp- empower those who are shopping for a higher education to figure out what people like them got out of it in the past seems to me a fundamental thing, and it, and it doesn't cost much. Why not... Uh, why are we hi- why are we why are we hiding this information? I think there's an, an, an institutional <laughs> reason to hide the information, particularly if you if if you don't think your students are doing very well. But from a public point of view,
2: why not make it available? Well, Congress a few years ago prohibited I know the, <laughs> the creation of a unit record system. Universities can't individually get employment data very well. No, I know I mean, that. I this... tried to do it. What what we need a federal uh, system or some authority to to get the data from Social Security. You can argue maybe from the IRS where you get income levels, but you get the data on, on whether your students have been employed uh, and, uh, and frankly, get these graduation works. Sure. The graduation system, most of you know, you know, you do it doesn't count towards your graduation rate if you get a student coming in and going out, outside of cycle. I'm sorry, Doctor.
1: No, I'm fine
3: with that one. No, it, you know, it's all, I, again, it's all there in the IRS. When you are a, when, when you're a student at a college or a university, uh, the college or university has to submit a form, XX whatever it is, to the IRS uh, every semester. And so they know where you were there, and they've got the tax records. There's a brilliant young economist named Raj Chetty at Harvard who has uh, gotten access to these data and published fascinating studies that link Actual lifetime earnings to early life, life events. I can see no reason for for the federal government not, given given a substantial, ineffective intervention in higher education, to do this one thing that would let us figure out how
2: institutions are doing. We need help in getting this unilateral prohibition of Congress taken care of.
0: uh, My official capacity here is only as moderator, but I also am employed by the Cato Institute, so I'll give two objections to that real quick. One is we have seen on many occasions that the federal government and other organizations have had difficulty keeping what was supposed to be private information private. So that is a concern. My other concern is when the federal government collects data, there is a tendency to cherry pick from that data to misuse it and then to drive policy based on data that is misinterpreted. So I would say that there are some reasons to be concerned. But I'm just the moderator, so next I'll go on to the next question so nobody can respond to that. And back there, right there,
3: yep.
5: My name is Andrew Nichols, I'm with the Council for Opportunity and Education, and uh, my question is for Dr. Freed. Um, in your presentation, you gave a recommendation about not singling out for-profit institutions. And um, I'm assuming that the rationale for not doing that is because everybody, in your opinion, is, is making profits. Yeah, everybody's doing it. Now, um, I would like to point out that um, for-profit institutions uh, use about a quarter of the Pell Grant money. A quarter, but they only represent about maybe 12 to 13 percent of institutions across the board. Now these institutions also are overrepresented among uh, loan defaults as far as student default rates, and they graduate students at a much lower percentage than private institutions and public institutions. And so certainly maybe everyone's profiting, um, so everyone's committing a crime, but there's a difference in a misdemeanor and a felony. and It looks like you know, for-profit institutions are are committing felonies. And I just want to know how can you justify that and you seem to ignore those facts in your paper?
1: Okay. Well, first I'd point out since we are at Cato, the phrase profit is not viewed as criminal. Okay. Uh, Number one. Uh, But, you know, what I'm saying is not at all a defense of the for-profit industry, I'm just saying that nonprofits ought to be treated the same and if you look at it from the standpoint of how much like student loan default rates all of that sort of stuff you know schools that produce bad student loans should be treated differently from good uh so, you know, I wouldn't argue, but it's not a for-profit, non-profit distinction. It's these people produce good loans, these people produce bad loans.
2: I, I think that is, frankly, the way to look at this. We all get in trouble politically, and we won't get any done in this town, if it's a battle between for-profits and nonprofits. The question is, what does the institution deliver? it is true that there's been an explosion of for-profit students and a huge, and your numbers are basically right on their percentage of the pell money and their percentage of the students their default rates they've got some real problems but some of the f- nonprofits has as well and the way i take on this issue is to say everybody has to deliver at some minimum in order to continue to be eligible uh, for these programs. And let's face it, Pell has doubled since 2008. This is a very expanding program. Uh, For-profits are part of that, but so too are others. I I think we can get where you're going and have a better result if we talk about this not as a for-profit or non-profit, but simply an expectation for all the institutions. And I do believe we need this unit record process to know whether students get jobs, whether students graduate. I'd like, I, as I, as a academic administrator, I've thought, look, do my students get jobs? Uh, do my students graduate, properly measured? Uh, and of course, do they learn things, important things?
3: Well, we have a unit record system, social security number, and uh, we already have uh, we already have the information. I'm agreeing with you. I'm just saying we we don't need any, we don't need a new unit record. We just need access to the data that have already been lodged next to our unit record number, which is our social security number. You know, on on for profits and, and nonprofits, I, there's some bad players in the for profit sector. I think that's uh, that's pretty obvious. But we need a fair accounting, and so. Of course, I think, it, it, for me, it's, 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 it's straightforward that the for-profits uh, consume more of federal aid than the not-for-profits, because the for-profits are not subsidized, and the non-profits are. And that's why I think we need an accounting that's fair with respect to total public expenditure. What is the cost of a degree awarded? Revenues from all sources. For both types of institutions, and then we will be able to find out. I think what's going on, and uh, you know, if, if, the, if the feds want to intervene, at least they would be doing it on the basis of, uh, of of good information rather than the biases that are out there now. Okay, we have. Uh, we'll go here, and then after that, in the corner in
0: the back row. But right now, this young man right here has his hand up.
5: <coughs> I, I, my name is Kevin Lekier. Um, I had a question I thought was kind of fundamental, I'm sorry, and uh, that I didn't hear anybody address. And that is, do you think that a policy of pushing for four-year degrees and pushing everybody going to college, or as many people going to college as possible, is really helping? Or does that kind of of limit competition uh, among schools that might want to do things differently and push experience rather than classroom time?
1: Well, quick answer uh, on that is do I think we're probably pushing too many people in four-year colleges? Yes. Uh, Look at other options. Yeah, shorter-term options. You know, I've got the basic question, why in the world is bachelor's degree four years to start out with if you look at what actually happens in most. Most bachelor's degrees ought to be three years. Quick answer.
2: Well, I, what, the, what the data show is that employers want a larger and larger percentage of their employees to have college degrees, uh, presumably reflecting a steadily higher level of skill and knowledge. Uh, what the exact figure is, I, I'm not sure. But I think if we're going to be uh, economically competitive in the years ahead, our people are going to need steadily higher levels of skill and knowledge.
1: Well, let me comment. I went at the airport uh, coming in. One of the escalators was busted and getting repaired, okay? The guys doing the escalator need to know how to fix escalators. I don't have a clue how to do it. So yeah, they need to know stuff. Do they need four years of college? I seriously doubt it. And I think that's one of the problems that we've gotten into as we just push this four years is just this default degree. And it doesn't match up well with what do people actually need to know in the labor market. It's really sort of a historical anachronism that we're really wed to.
2: I've thought a lot about why unemployment rates in this recession and, that, for that matter, prior recessions are lower uh, for four-year and above uh, holders. And I think one of the fact, one of it is, one point is that a little more education seems to prepare you for a broader number of options or emotional flexibility to get more options. Uh, so, exactly what the education should be, I think individuals need to obviously make their own determinations, uh, but fundamentally, I don't, I do a lot of work in Africa, and uh, and for years the AID program was emphasizing K-12, and I always thought it was sort of insulting that, that we thought, uh, uh, high school education was enough for a developing country, uh, I, because it, the future isn't going to be built on on elementary and high school education in Africa. I, I'm not sure as valuable as community colleges are, and they are critical. I'm not sure they alone are the future. So I, so I, what the mix is, I'm not sure. But I, uh, in principle, I think President Obama's goal of the 2020. Uh, highest in the world by 2020 or 2025 is a very fi- uh, sound one and APLU is very supportive
3: I, I think the, the college for all mantra is a, is a serious mistake because it fails to account for the very strong individual differences in terms of labor markets around the country in terms of student preparation and interest and so it's one of those things where on average on average it makes sense to get a four-year degree versus a two-year degree and a two-year degree versus no degree on, uh, at all on average. But if you, if you look at the distribution in terms of uh, just labor market outcomes around those means, the distributions are very heavily overlapping. And in some places, they are misordered <laughs> in, in, in a way that would surprise you. So there's nice data from Florida showing that uh, people who pick up a technical degree, uh, air conditioning repair or uh, escalator repair, are doing better than students with a two-year community college degree in terms of the labor market. Uh, The principal reason, the principal predictor of students uh, dropping out, defaulting on their loans, not completing, is lack lack of preparation. Arguably, and I, I think empirically, there, there are a number of, of, of students in this country or potential college students who would be better off pursuing something that they're more interested in and better prepared in. Germany does a, a much better job of uh, linking its educational system to, uh, to, to, to the needs of the country so that there, uh, there are better, much fewer mismatches that occur in this country. So I think we need to to differentiate a little bit and rather than think that any particular outcome is good for all, it it, uh, undervalues vocational education, it undervalues uh, preparation and match between aspirations and goals and opportunities and and I think leads us down a path that's going to do damage to some and we needn't do that while still honoring uh, and respecting the value that's to be obtained from getting more education, but what education, when, and, and when, and for what goal is what I think we need to be thinking about. Okay, in the, the corner in the front row of the back right there? Oh, back there. Yep,
0: right in the
6: corner. I'm Judith Eaton with the Council for Higher Education Accreditation, and my questions are directed to uh, to Dr. Freed. Uh, first, uh, if we were able to reduce the federal investment, as, as you're suggesting, uh, would you also be willing to reduce federal control? Because at, with the money, we've had an explosion of, of federal control in, in my view. Second, have you modeled your suggestions uh, with specific institutions? What if you applied your your approach to Oklahoma State? Would you still be in, employed and, and under what conditions? Uh, and And third, Is your uh, exploration of the role of profit as you're defining it here in higher education driven by the business model we use now and by that what I'm trying to get at is suppose we had a different business model, $200 for a course online that exists now, non-amenities, non-campus, would you still pursue uh, the goal of not having uh, profit as a a motive in in higher
1: education? Okay. I think to to get them in order, uh, first, was decreased federal control with decreased money? Yes. Okay. Second, would I have a job if Oklahoma State didn't get all of these things? I had a job before all of these things were available, Uh, That's the thing you've got to realize. All this stuff is a fairly recent vintage. And I think the big impact, if we just bring it to faculty job part, which is sort of what I have a personal interest in, is we do hire more faculty now than we used to because we have much lower teaching loads than we used to, because we spend a whole lot more of our time in taxpayer money, doing research than we used to. From my standpoint, as one of the people that gets to do that and get paid, that's great. From the standpoint of student or taxpayer, I don't think so. Uh, so I'm sort of biting the hand that feeds me in a great deal of, of what I'm saying. And what was the third one? The third question was around your to okay the the model. No, actually, uh, in my study where I've got that eyesight, which, by the way, is available in the book that you can buy outside, uh, I designed a full bells and whistles small residential college and got uh, a number of $6,700 for the full cost of running the school. And it was literally a school exactly how you know, my perfect school would be. I think if you go to running in more of a pure commuter school environment and eliminate everything but instruction, you can get cost a lot lower than what, you know, I was showing.
0: I should just point out that... uh, be sure to go check out the book and buy copies because if federal money gets cut off, that's the only income Vance Freed will have. So you want to make sure you get that. And now we are in the third row down here in the front. Right there.
7: My name is Martin Apple, um, Council of Scientific Society Presidents. Uh, Dr. Freed, you mentioned a little while ago that uh, we should prepare students for the jobs of the future. So I'm wondering what those jobs are going to be. If I look back a dozen years and tried to prepare students based on what I knew then, when Google was a number instead of an enterprise, (laughs) when I never heard of iPads, when China could not make a single uh, solar or wind power device, when the world was so radically changed in just this short period of time, in order to prepare the students, I would have given them a curriculum that was not fixed on some particular star of what the jobs would be in the future, but some group of people who could graduate being able to figure out what those jobs could be and starting them themselves. So I'm looking at you when you said you were essentially pointing that you had something in your mind about what the jobs were going to be. So I'd like to know what they are.
1: Okay, I'm actually a little confused by that one. What I think the jobs of the future are going to be, I'd say from a bachelor's degree education standpoint, you want to have a fairly broad background. And if you're specifically interested in technology jobs, you would want to have a te- broad technology background. If you'd asked me 10 years ago, uh, Actually, Google was before 10 years ago, Uh, right, okay. Uh, I would have basically said, yeah, if you like this sort of stuff, you need to get a broad IT background. Who knows where it's going to be 10 years from now, but we know something's going to be there. So we broadly educate you, and then we... uh, you know you get a job and you adjust as life goes on on my elevator repair man uh story uh the uh number of escalators and the need for escalator repair people I'm guessing has been pretty static for the last fifty years, so that sort of stuff's much more predictable.
0: okay, let's see uh in the back there, right behind you, right nope behind you. There you
8: go. Uh, I'm George Lee for the uh, Pope Center for Higher Education Policy. And as I read Professor Fried's paper, it, it's, the point that jumped out at me is that higher education leaders apparently are revenue maximizers. They want to create, they bring in as much revenue as they possibly can from every source they can, which creates this grass, mm-hmm. lushy grass commons over which all the different interest groups within the university uh, community feed. Why are there apparently so few or maybe no uh, higher ed leaders who are interested in, in keeping cost to the minimum so the students can afford it the best? Are there any who do that? Uh, I, I suspect there are probably some college leaders who abjure the high revenue, high cost model and say, look, we're just going to try to provide the best kind of like your model college. But why, why is that not the incentive amongst uh, education uh, leaders these days?
2: Well, you were there in Michigan when I was president of Michigan State. You remember our tuition guarantee where the, the deal that we sort of publicly announced to the legislature was we won't increase tuition more than inflation if you give us an inflation-adjusted increase uh, to our state appropriation. And we're able to stick to that deal nine out of 11 years I was president. Now that was a very concrete way of nailing things down. Uh, but I I don't I know I wasn't the only president. I thought there were many that were struggling to contain costs. And you look at iPads data is is has its issues, but that data seems to show that on a does show that over a at least a decade, uh, education costs as they define it. Have been very flat. Uh, That basically the increase of of expenditures for education have begun because our student numbers have grown so much. In this country, over a relatively few years, we're 30 or 40 percent more students. Now, my solution to this is to is to move to models, and I think tough times are forcing us to do this, to move to models where we break down our costs, we measure the outcomes of various components, we have to defend it, those components would be difficult. Uh, We have a unit record system where we know what our graduation rates are and our employment rates, and I think that'll... Drive a number of changes, public institutions, to raise tuition is not an easy decision. You remember what the legis- you were working for the legislature of Michigan at the time. <coughs> Your boss never wanted us to raise tuition, and it wasn't easy because we had to go back up to the legislature and explain why we did it.
3: I, I would just add add to that. I mean, I agree with everything uh, Peter Peter has said. I the only addition I would make is that the, the contingency for most uh, university leaders and certainly faculty in universities, which have a lot to do with the behavior of their, their leaders, is reputational. So if I can spend more money and raise my U.S. News & World Report uh, uh, figure, if I can uh, be known to have the best program of this or that sort as, as determined by peer judgment then I'm, uh, then I'm doing well. And so a reputational uh, contingency doesn't generate nearly the same impact as one that has to do with uh, how many students did you graduate and how many of them are employed and what's your cost per unit for doing that. And I think as we're able to make that information available and in public, it will change. Uh, here, here, I'm just saying what you said. It will change institutional behavior.
2: As, as many of you know, uh, APLU, along with ASCU, a few years ago created this voluntary system of accountability uh, for which Oklahoma State, Michigan State, uh, 300 of the 500 public universities in this country are part of that is testing entering freshmen randomly and, and upon their graduation doing the same thing on some core skills. We basically think, because public institutions, I mean, I was, the legislature and the public were all over us, I thought, uh, we need to be accountable, and I think we don't quite have the tools to be fully accountable at the current time. And we uh, we're moving in that direction, and we should.
1: Well, I'd make a couple points, basically addressing public university uh, standpoint. One, I think we our per student spending has has gone up. Uh, as this is a top-of-the-head number, I believe last year the average public research university spent about $27,000 per student. Now, that includes the full uh, university-funded research and outreach budget. So it's not just undergraduate education. It's the whole thing. And if you look at it, uh, most schools, well, I'll just take Oklahoma State where I started 25 years ago. Our in-state tuition is now equal to roughly to what out of state tuition was when I first started. And the reason is we just our, our cost have gone up that much. The state subsidy has stayed about the same on a per capita basis. I think one of the issues that happened to state schools is you were a president in the '90s. Right, and you had to go in and justify. 2000, 2004, I think. Okay, you had to justify tuition increases. A uh, lot of states have gone to a system to where you don't have to go justify the tuition increase. Uh, and when that happened, then everybody starts raising it up because we view our competition. Uh, is one the other state flagship research school in state. Other than that, it's private research universities, and they're already up there high, so we can just sort of bump ours up a a little bit every time. And then the other thing I would agree with you all is until recently, there's been, I think, pressure put on us to spend more money. We have been told that spending more money is good. U.S. News and World Report, we're supposed to raise our ratings. Well, the whole ratings thing is largely driven by spending per student. So it's pretty cool when somebody tells you you have to increase the amount of money that you spend on your employees. It was pretty cool to be an employee in that setting.
2: I I, I, I want to get to this is a good engagement. I think U.S. News and World Report, which is almost entirely based upon inputs, only some 5% of the rating goes to how well you do on your expected graduation rate. They change them every year or so. But I think that's an unfortunate way to measure things, and that was part of why we created the Voluntary System of Accountability. Uh, I do think, though, Doctor, that when you look at these figures on expenditures over, over a period of 10-plus years, education expenditures of the big publics per student, key per student because our numbers have grown substantially, per student have been inflation-adjusted about the same. Our intuition is, has raised. But the tuition raise, amount raised over the number of years has roughly gone to make up the drop in per-student state appropriation. The numbers, we did a wonderful report on this that's on our webpage uh, done by our then Chief Academic Officer, David Schulenberger. The data is now a couple years old, uh, but I think that's, that's a long-term trend. So I, And I'll tell you, the state of Michigan loved it. When Michigan State was able to to get the nuclear uh, the the, the nuclear facility, a physics facility, we did a couple years ago, Uh, those things didn't were important for the state. So I don't think you want to use the numbers of what we spend per student. You want to look at what we spend per student on education.
0: I'm going to, I think we have time for one more quick question to tie this all up and then we have to, to end it. So if you've got a really, really good question to end on, you can keep your hand up. If not, then you're in trouble. And we'll go right there.
3: Thank you. Um, my name is Greg
4: Sheckman. I'm from the University of Central Florida, but my question does not reflect the, uh, necessarily affect the opinions of the university. Um, A couple weeks ago, there was a a meeting here in town by the Hamilton Project, and a um, venture capitalist said that the rate of return for higher education is 15%, much higher than anything else he's done. Now, this is a guy that has worked with the Federal Reserve, has started a number of companies, is on a number of boards, including NASDAQs, 15%. So here we are talking about profits. Uh, What Dr. McPherson says and what a lot of us are charged with when we're public universities and large public research universities in particular teaching, research, and service, okay? There are three pillars. And so the question that I have, and, and again, it goes to Dr. McPherson again, is we would be held in contempt by our states and our legislators if we did not do the research, economic development, ag extension, et cetera, that is required and expected of public universities. It's much more than teaching, unlike a community college, which is primarily about teaching. And I could say that because I was on the board of a community college for many years. So I think you have to differentiate the missions, and therefore you're going to have to differentiate costs. The same thing is true with a bricks and mortar institution versus an online. The online <laughs> institution doesn't have those those three responsibilities. So it, it's an apples and oranges argument. I don't. I understand about trying to. Do
0: you have a question? Because we really got a. We're already over time. So
4: the question is is really just getting to the premise of of this conversation, which is: Are we really talking about? apples and apples, or is it apples and oranges?
1: Well, I'll give you a quick answer. Uh, Do I think most undergraduate students realize that they're paying for all this other stuff when they pay tuition? No. Do I think that uh, most state legislatures realize that basically all the money that they're giving to subsidize schools are going to uh, research and public service? and my guess is no they don't have a clue they're told that this is necessary to to subsidize undergraduate education
2: of course we don't really agree that with the clarity of your statement that all this all the tuition that there's so much profit to use your term in tuition i mean i i don't think anybody really has sufficient handle on these numbers uh, but as I so, I want to I want to challenge your basic premise, and I, in due respect, in this good discussion here today, I wouldn't want you to get away with that final okay. statement.
1: Okay. Well, if everybody will buy my book, they'll see where I came up with uh, right. all those numbers. Uh,
0: Russ, <laughs> do you have anything you want to add to that It sort of tied it up? But you might have a cherry to put on top, which I just mixed my metaphors, but who cares?
2: It's good to be here today, folks. Thank you for all.
0: Well, then, thanks, everybody. And that concludes our forum. If you head upstairs, there is wine and cheese and all sorts of refreshments, and you can talk amongst yourselves about what you heard here today.